of all the chapters in the book of Acts, chapter 20 is where I personally have spent the most time in my life in large ways. God has convicted me, encouraged me, sanctified me, shaped me, and continues to do so from this passage of his word. It makes me all the more aware of my own failings and my own continual need for Christ in my life and my ministry, that we might hear God's word as God's word. Uh, Let's pray to our God before we read it. Lord, as we have worshiped in song, so we now worship and study. The great privilege of studying your word, the ready access that we have to it, that we can read it freely, exposit it freely, and then have the freedom to apply it into every aspect of life. We do pray then your spirit to come and to bear witness to the reading and preaching of your word, that we would know it as your word, to receive it as such and to apply it as such. And so as always, we pray for the preacher who is not worthy and by your grace, he is able. So it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, Acts 20 has three distinct narratives. So we're going to read each of them in their parts and then consider them one at a time. So let's first go to Acts 20 and the first six verses. Listen to God's word. When the uproar, that is the uproar in Ephesus, had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy also, Antichicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, And five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, for those who are interested in chronology of events, verses one through three are utterly fascinating. For those who aren't, don't fall asleep because it is still God's word. Paul wrote many letters to the churches that he planted. When did he write them? Where was he when he wrote them? The letters to the Corinthians are especially interesting. He wrote 1 Corinthians while in Ephesus, having sent Titus to Corinth to pastor there, receiving word about the divisions and conflicts in the Corinthian church. And so he leaves Ephesus intending to head to Corinth, but instead travels to Macedonia, having heard from Titus and Troas that things were getting resolved. And so Paul then travels to Greece. And we can put all these things together, not just from these words, but also from Paul's letters. For example, in 2 Corinthians, he says, I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. But when our plans are not God's plans, things change, right? Paul experienced that. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians then from Macedonia, perhaps from Philippi. And he encouraged the Macedonian churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then he goes on to Greece, to Athens, and eventually to Corinth, his letter having made it there before he did. 
And he stays in Corinth for three months, the winter months when you couldn't travel by sea. And it was during those three months in Corinth that Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, hoping someday to travel there after going to Jerusalem, which in God's providence will be what happens, but certainly not as Paul had planned. Well, Paul planned then to get on a boat in Corinth and head to Syria, that is to Jerusalem, but they caught wind of a plot against Paul's life. So instead, he travels back inland again through the Macedonian churches. So that becomes the chronology. For those who are interested in logistics, verses 4 and 5 are fascinating. And for those who aren't, don't fall asleep. It is still God's word. We know from Paul's letters that he was taking a large offering from the Gentile churches that he had planted throughout Macedonia and Greece and Galatia and to bring that offering to the Jerusalem church that was dealing with famine and much poverty. At the end of his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 16, Paul says this, Now about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. And so in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, we read the names of those who are accompanying Paul, the appointed representatives who will carry this large collection from the churches. Second Corinthians speaks further about a trusted person chosen by the brothers to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Paul and Luke go out of their way to name names in order to steward the gifts of God's people with the utmost integrity. It is descriptive, but it is also, I think, prescriptive that we should pursue integrity in all our financial dealings and also be generous in giving to the needs of others. Perhaps it was Paul's hope that this financial gift from the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church would be a peace offering as well, and that the Jewish Christians would embrace Gentile Christians who have given so generously. And maybe unconverted Jews might also be moved by generous Gentiles, and this could contribute towards winning some of them to Jesus Christ. God has given us his son, the most undeserved, generous gift that has ever been given. It is God's kindness that has led us to repentance. Our undeserved generosity to others is a ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this group, representatives from the churches, are the posse with Paul that protect the offering from being stolen or mishandled, and they head to Troas from which they will begin their travels to Jerusalem. Notice that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, has rejoined the group, indicated by the use of the first-person plural pronouns, we and us, in verses 5 and 6. All right, for those who are not interested in chronology and logistics, but you like good stories, we move on to the account of what happened to a certain youth on a certain Sunday 
in Troas. Listen again to God's word beginning at verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were seated. Uh, We were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. For every one of us who's ever fallen asleep during a sermon, this one's for us. (laughs) There's a great little book from Gary Miller and Phil Campbell. Uh, It's entitled Saving Eutychus. (laughs) <laughs> how to preach God's word and keep people awake. It doesn't happen, they say rightly, by making preaching more entertaining, though that is what most preachers seem to do these days, especially in our entertainment culture. The authors wisely write, our challenge is not just to avoid being deadly dull. Our challenge is also to be faithful, accurate, and clear as we cut to the heart of the biblical text and apply what God is really saying in a way that cuts to the hearts of people who are really listening. In Sunday school today, as we continue to look at the elements of worship this morning, we're going to look at the hearing of God's word. We've already talked about the preaching of God's word, but to talk about the hearing of God's word. It is the preacher's duty to preach God's word as God's word. But it is the congregation's duty to hear God's word as God's word. The preacher should pray for the preaching of God's word, but the authors go on to suggest that the church also should pray not only for the preaching, but also for their hearing of God's word. It can't be about how entertaining or engaging the preacher is. At best, all you get then is simply the words of the preacher. But if you hear God's word, then it is carrying the weight and the authority of God himself. That's why here we do expository preaching. The question is not, what does Dan want to talk about this morning? Nor should the question be, what do I want to hear from Dan this morning? Instead, we must ask, what does the text say? So that it is God's word that we are hearing, interpreting, and applying. The message of the text is the message of the sermon. So let's get to it. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, and at that point in time, Sunday was a work day, so it would have been Sunday evening following the work day. So on the first day of the week, Sunday evening, we came together to break bread, worship, including communion. And Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Wow. I don't care how good a speaker you are, listening for hours, right up until midnight after a long workday would be tough for anyone. Not even Tim Keller could hold your attention for that long. The Apostle Paul couldn't either. Verse 9, seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. We have all had those moments when people drone on and on and on. 
and we try to be polite and listen as long as possible, but so tired. (laughs) This is not a problem of Paul preaching poorly. Neither is it a problem of Eutychus as a poor listener. It's midnight, and we all get tired. The concern is not so much for a body that is asleep, but a soul that is asleep. If you cannot stay awake for a sermon because you just worked the midnight shift, that's understandable. But if you cannot stay awake for the proclamation of God's word because your soul doesn't care for God's word, then that is a great concern. Eutychus is called a young man in verse 9, and then a different word is used in verse 12. It's actually the word pedo from which we get pediatrics, which means he was probably a youth between the ages of 8 and 14. But let's not be too hard on poor Eutychus or on our youth here this morning. Instead, Eutychus is an example to our youth of someone who desired to hear God's word. He even sits in the window trying to get fresh air. He's not stargazing, but trying his best to stay awake, longing to hear God's word, but the body finally gives out. In fact, it's interesting, the name Eutychus means fortunate. Certainly he counted himself fortunate to hear God's word, fortunate to know Christ as a savior and Lord, and fortunate to be alive after his fall. The proof that all this is the case is seen in the events that follow. The Lord miraculously raises Eutychus from the dead. And as Eutychus and all the others head home sort of rubbing their eyes and saying, wow, it's been a long night. We really ought to get some sleep before somebody else falls asleep and dies. No, verse 11. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. Eutychus falls asleep, falls to his death at midnight. He's revived. They all come back upstairs and listen to Paul preach again from midnight until daylight. That is a youth and a people eager to hear God's word. To our youth, let Eutychus be your example and encouragement to listen to God's word. To our parents, let Eutychus be our example and encouragement to help our children grow in their ability to listen to God's word. Utilize the children's bulletin. We've got sermon bingo, sometimes fill in the blanks, places to draw pictures, to write questions. Have your youth share with you their insights and what they heard from the sermon and to share that maybe at lunch today. To all of us, let Eutychus be our example and encouragement to get a decent night's sleep on Saturday, or you wouldn't even stay awake for Paul, and be concerned for our soul if God's word does not hold our interest. The resurrection power evidenced in raising Eutychus back to life is the same miraculous power that exists in the reading and proclamation of God's word. In the beginning, when God created, he spoke and creation miraculously happened out of nothing. God speaks and our souls are miraculously quickened to life in order to hear and respond to God's word. The word of the Lord is his gracious gift to us revealing himself to us that we might know life and know it abundantly. I'm going to rush continually through there, the Eutychus story, and rush through the logistics in the opening verses because Paul is rushing to get to Jerusalem. He would love to spend more time with these people who he loves so deeply, but he needs to keep going, and so do we, to the key speech, Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders beginning at verse 13. 
we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When we met, he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. This is the only speech of Paul in the book of Acts that is addressed to Christians. All of his other speeches are evangelistic to unbelievers, including his defenses before kings and courts and councils. He's traveling in a hurry with every step tanking longer than he planned. And so he sends for the elders of the Ephesian church, and his love for the elders and the people of Ephesus is clear. His pastoral affection is in verse 19. I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. And his pastoral affection continues in verse 20. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught publicly and from house to house. 
In other words, Paul didn't shy away from the tough topics or the tough situations. Later in verse 27, he will say, I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole will of God to you. In other words, Paul didn't preach the power of positive thinking. Paul didn't preach simple messages about joy and comfort, encouragement and hope. Paul was not an inspirational speaker. Paul preached the gospel with its application to every aspect of life and existence. Paul proclaimed the indicatives and imperatives of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by the grace of God, and this grace moves us to repentance and faith in Christ. The proclamation of the gospel calls for repentance and a new way of life in Christ, made possible by the sacrifice of Christ. Back in verse 24, Paul says he has testified to the gospel of God's grace, And in verse 25, he calls it preaching the kingdom because the gospel of God's grace is also the gospel of God's kingdom, the gospel applied to everything, everywhere. If the gospel is ever boring to you, it may be because it has stopped being the gospel and has turned into easy believism. Or perhaps it's only being applied to personal salvation. The gospel says that we and all of creation were created by God to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. But the fall into sin means that we and all of creation were affected so that the reason that we and all creation deal with conditions of disorder, chaos, misery, and corruption is because of that fall. But the good news is that God did not leave us in creation in that disorder in that condition. But he sent Jesus Christ who has accomplished everything necessary for the redemption of us and all creation. The Holy Spirit now dwells in us and among us so that we can apply this redemption to ourselves and to all of creation. And so wherever we see disorder, wherever we see chaos, corruption, misery, We are called to apply the gospel of mercy, sacrifice, order, generosity, restoration, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is the whole will of God and the privilege that we have of ministering God's grace everywhere to everything. And it is because of this gospel that Paul is compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem where he says... He doesn't know what will happen, but certainly he has a pretty good idea. Having experienced already many hardships and suffering because of his testifying to the gospel, and certainly there is more to come. He knows that he is walking into that fire. Likewise, we should not be surprised that there will be hardships and suffering when we live out the gospel of God's grace. And it seems crazy that should be the case. It seems crazy that a ministry of mercy, love, and restoration should face any obstacles. But it does. Because as we point to the lordship of King Jesus, there is a clear power struggle that takes place. In Ephesus, Paul pointed to King Jesus, and it meant that they stopped buying silver statues of Artemis, and the silversmiths got angry. In Corinth, Jesus pointed 
to Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And the Jewish leaders became abusive because it means that they are losing their power and influence. In Athens, Paul points to the one true God and the philosophers, the idol makers, the religious and political leaders opposed him because they were threatened that their power and influence and livelihood would be lost. Surrendering to the Lord, even the Lord of love, still means surrender. Still means submission, repentance, and change. Such that the very thing we need is the very thing that we naturally reject, unless God softens our hearts to embrace Him. The medicine tastes terrible, but you need to take it in order to experience the healing. And how many of us have pets that we try to talk to them to get them to move toward food or safety or rest, and they just stare at us? or obstinately refuse to move. And that takes us to verses 28 through 31 in the shepherding ministry. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The most excellent exposition and application of these verses is given in Richard Baxter's The Reformed Pastor read this over and over. Three chapters. Chapter one, the oversight of ourselves. Chapter two, the oversight of the flock. And chapter three, application. Elders must keep watch over themselves, for we are also sheep, prone to wander, prone to our own sinful nature. But we are also charged to keep watch over the flock, And so here, elders are overseers and shepherds. And these terms are used interchangeably so that there are not different offices of elder and overseer called bishop. The title is elder, which is the Greek word presbyter, and the function is overseer, the Greek word episcopal, and we are shepherding pastors, all elders are. And shepherding would be really easy if we weren't all prone to wander. And if all the sheep contentedly and joyfully all moved in the same direction to the green pasture on the other side of the hill, not so much, right? The nature of sheep is covered in lots of places in the scriptures. Matthew 18 tells us about the lost sheep who wanders away so that the shepherd must go and look for them and bring them back to the fold, at which point in time two others have wandered away. But shepherding is made more difficult for two additional reasons that Paul gives here. First in verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. A significant part of pastoring is dealing with the savage, fierce, grievous wolves who continually attack the flock, the church of God. It's the people, the forces that are outside of the church that attack. It's the worldly influences, outright evil elements that seek to destroy the faith and life of Christians in the church. It's the false teaching and the false practices that are encouraged by the world that Christians get sucked into. And all of those evil, unredeemed, chaotic, miserable elements in the world where Jesus does not yet reign and attack the flock, we must protect the flock from those attacks and at the same try to try to minister the gospel to those elements. The miraculous work of God can transform wolves into sheep. 
And the Apostle Paul is a living example of this for the Ephesian elders. The second reason that shepherding is made more difficult is even more insidious. Verse 30, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Richard Baxter describes four groups in the church that need to be shepherded. First, the weak, those who are perhaps new to the faith or are experiencing circumstances that have left them wounded. Second are the strong, who still continue needing encouragement. Three are the backsliders, those who have wandered away and need to be chased down and reclaimed. And fourth are those who labor under a particular sin that makes them harmful to themselves and to others. Frequently, it is in a sin of pride. And so much of pastoring and eldering is dealing with those who are difficult and burdensome, who are harmful to the flock and don't realize it. Some may be wolves in sheep's clothing. Some may just be extra difficult. Wolves are wolves by nature. Attacking sheep is part of their nature. Likewise, those who are loaded with pride think that they are right and think that what they think is right. Often church discipline is necessary, as we affirmed from the Westminster Confession earlier in the service, to deal with those who are notorious and obstinate offenders for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump. It is one of the hardest, most time-consuming, exhausting demands of pastoring. So why do we do it? Verse 28, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood that he bought with his own blood. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Ezekiel 34 that we read earlier says some hard words to shepherds who are neglectful and shepherds who are harmful. That prophecy of Ezekiel also points to the very good news that the Lord himself will be the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. So elders and pastors are to act as his under shepherds. The apostle Paul was willing to face prison and hardships, though he was falsely accused. Pastors sometimes must place themselves in harm's way to deal with the burdensome and difficult who bring false accusations and who are harmful to the flock. So Paul closes with a great encouragement in verse 32. Now I commit you to God, to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, we can't do anything apart from God and the word of his grace. Positively stated, even things that are impossible become possible by God and the word of his grace. God and the word of his grace affects the logistics of how we do things, which is where we all live most of the time, right? It's the means to the ends. It's the process along the way. It's the car ride to the appointment. We saw what care Paul and Luke and our Lord give to logistics for financial integrity, to do things decently and in order so as to honor the Lord and build up the body. And the phrase, which can build you up, and that word translated can or able in other translations, is the word that we've seen before. It's where we get our word dynamite. God and the word of his grace is dynamite kind of power that is able to build you up 
able to give you the only inheritance that matters, the eternal inheritance that we receive as children of God. All who receive Jesus Christ receive this eternal inheritance. We who are sanctified and continue to be sanctified, growing in faith and repentance, do so by the work of God and the word of his grace. God's grace builds us up so that we can help the weak. God's grace builds us up so that we can give rather than just receive. God's grace builds us up so that we can build up others by sharing with them God and the word of his grace. That's why we do what we do. And so may the truth set us free for that.